Recessions are like hurricanes. There are signs that they're out there looming, but you never know exactly when they'll hit or how much damage they'll cause when they do. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, and I'm here with another episode of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions' riveting transfer pricing podcast. No doubt you've heard the rumors swirling around this summer that a recession is on the horizon. The yield curve, historically one of the best recession forecasters and one of the strongest current indications, is inverted, meaning, of course, that interest rates on long-term government bonds have fallen below short-term ones. Some economists take this so-called evidence as an in-your-face sign that economic confidence is declining and chances of a downturn are increasing. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York is concerned, too. In fact, one of their recent metrics estimates the chance of a recession based solely on yield curve fluctuations as one in three, an increase from a year ago and right around where it wavered before the Great Recession. While other indicators aren't sold on the idea of recession inevitability, the unemployment rate is mostly steady and the ISM manufacturing index is more ambivalent than dire. Perhaps the bigger question isn't so much will it or won't it happen, but are you prepared if it does? From a transfer pricing perspective, anticipating a recession can be complicated. After all, the whole profession is based on an ability to prove that our beloved multinational companies haven't eroded tax bases by shifting profits to lower tax jurisdictions. Well, how do you prove you haven't eroded any tax bases where there are no profits to not shift? And how do you explain to tax jurisdiction A... Why you're in the red here, but your low entity tax jurisdiction B is in the black. Well, don't look at me. I'm just a podcast host. In fact, we're leaving those hard-hitting questions for cross-border solutions, transfer pricing know-it-alls, Nicole Shudo, and fingers crossed Mimi Song. Truth be told, Mimi's running a little bit late, but she may pop in on the conversation in a bit. And of course, the superstar who will be handling the bulk of our transfer pricing recession questions is our very special guest. Drumroll, please. Barbara Montagani, an attorney at Montagani Tax, PLLC, in Washington, D.C. A quick reminder, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this show. Here's how it works. We're planting two CPE code words in this podcast. Email both code words to all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we'll send you your certificate. Pretty easy, right? Okay, back to it. Let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Here are a few phrases we're sick of hearing. OMG, oh my God, be more original. Not to mention, well then don't mention it. And perhaps the biggest offender of late, taxation of the digital economy. You again? It seems like updates on digital taxation come quicker than you can refresh your browser. And apologies in advance because we're about to feed you another. The OECD is considering a new formula for tax allocation one that allocates income by giving market jurisdictions where consumers are located a percentage of a company's profits beyond a certain margin. What margin? What percentage? Good questions. Ones that nobody, at least for the moment, seems to have the answers. Of course, the U.S., home to five of the world's major tech companies, takes these kinds of proposals personally and opposes digital-only tax measures. Instead, the U.S. prefers methods that reflect companies can do business online without ever setting up shop in a jurisdiction and proposes to base digital taxation 
on users of marketing intangible assets. The problem with that plan is that it's hard to enforce worldwide, especially in developing countries. Then again, the OECD's plan isn't perfect either. While it determines the allocation of income for countries, there isn't a formula for how to divide that income between individual market jurisdictions. As for how this will play out, no one knows for certain quite yet, but one thing's for sure, that phrase, taxing the digital economy, OMG, you'll be hearing it a lot. Israel may seem relaxed when it comes to transfer pricing documentation. The OECD member doesn't require formal, local, and master files. And you're not on the hook for a CBC report there either. But the transfer pricing documentation the country does require, it takes seriously. Case in point, the Israel Tax Administration, or the ITA, just updated transfer pricing declaration form 1385. The form is an official declaration that you're, one, entering into transactions with foreign-related parties, and two, operating at arm's length. Like always, the ITA still wants the form submitted annually with your corporate income tax return, but now it's greedier about information. Tax authorities want more information, or the Pope has a balcony. Not sure which is less surprising. Just because Israel doesn't require a CBC report doesn't mean it can't exchange intelligence. In fact, now 1385 requires foreign entities name, address and tax ID number to make swapping info a little easier. More new must haves, the profitability ratio used to find the arm's length price, the financial volumes of each transaction and safe harbor applications. A corporate stamp sign off may have gotten you through in the past, but not anymore. Now Israel wants your CEO's personal autograph, and it's not taking no for an answer. Do tax treaties prevent base erosion profit shifting? The OECD, of course, is betting a hard yes with the multilateral convention to implement tax treaty measures to prevent BEPs. And it's gaining a long trail of followers. 88 have signed the MLI so far, and 33 have deposited their instruments of ratification, meaning they finalized which MLI articles they are adopting. Most recently, Canada and Switzerland joined the club depositing the 32nd and 33rd instruments, respectively. The MLI goes into effect for both countries on December 1st, 2019, but won't have the same effect. For Canada, the MLI will cover 33 tax treaties, and for Switzerland, only 12. Any bets on who will be next? Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We have a lot of experts on this show, but few, if any, have had a richer transfer pricing career than Barbara Montagani. 
Incidentally, hers is still going strong. A tax attorney and transfer pricing advisor, Barbara has worked as a competent authority analyst with the IRS, where she negotiated double taxation settlements with tax authorities from Japan, India, Denmark, and well, the list goes on. She's built her resume and the breadth of her experience at global law firms, and a few of the big four accounting firms will forgive you for that, Barbara. <laughs> Advising multinational enterprises on compliance, strategic transfer pricing planning, cost sharing arrangements, treaty dispute resolution, you name it. And even if you haven't crossed paths with her in person, you're likely to have read her opinions, perhaps about advanced pricing agreements, one of her specialties in tax notes, or on strategic dispute resolution at Bloomberg BNA. Or maybe you caught her speaking about transfer pricing at a conference. Hardly unusual. The woman loves to talk about transfer pricing. Would you believe for this show, she's actually calling in from her beach vacation. Cue those ocean waves. Just a few years ago, Barbara took her transfer pricing gig solo and founded Montagani Tax PLLC in Washington, D.C., where she continues to save multinationals from themselves. <laughs> uh, we mean advise multinational enterprises about how to make smooth legal transfer pricing moves. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for letting us interrupt your beach time. And with that, let's get started. Take it away, Nicole. Thanks for joining us, Barbara. But before we get started, how about we learn a little bit more about you? How is it that you got into transfer pricing? You know what? It, that's a sort of an odd, interesting question. Um, I'd like to say that I, you know, had been studying the panoply of tax issues and said this seems so fascinating. But reality, someone offered me a job and said, "You'll be doing tr transfer pricing," and I said, "Okay, I will do that." And so, and then only when I actually got into it and really started working on it, and and it was in the because I'm old. It was in the mid-90s when transfer pricing was really, at that point, just starting to become sort of a thing. And um, so I feel like I sort of, the, the transfer pricing regulations that we go by now had only come out in a couple of years earlier. And so it was, it was sort of a new thing. And, um, you know, I'd like to say I came to it with a great deal of thought and direction, but really I was very, very lucky somebody actually offered to pay me money to do something that I really love doing. That's great. I know you also did some of this work unpaid. I understand you did a bit of tax volunteering. Yeah, that's a thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at Community Tax Aid? Sure, yeah. Um, the two kinds of, the two tax issues that I'm really passionate about is, of course, transfer pricing, and then I'm even more passionate about Community Tax Aid, where we provide tax, um, tax return preparation and other tax services to low-income taxpayers. So um, I have run a clinic uh, that does tax returns in Arlington, Virginia, since 93, 92. Um, and we try to assist, you know, it, it gets harder and harder for, for the low-income people. Their lives are complicated, and, um, you know, they move a lot, and they have many jobs. They struggle with paperwork. And so there's a lot, a lot of things that people think, oh, well, if you don't make much money, it's not a big deal, right? Or, and it really is um, extremely difficult. Um, and so uh, particularly when you have people that are new to the system. Um, so I've been, it, it's, it's my other passion in tax is uh, community tax aid. And I've even recruited my husband into doing it. 
he's not a tax guy, but he um, he does it too. It's just uh, without us, these people would have nobody. They would go to a tax return preparer. God loves them; they're wonderful, but they charge a fair amount of money. They and um, you know, and my clients can't really afford that money, and they can use it to feed their kids. So anyway. Uh, you, sorry you asked that question. <laughs> no, not at all. That's wonderful. We love hearing that. But, you know, it's it's true what you said. I think all tax is complicated. So I guess when it comes to the complicated word of transfer pricing, can you tell us, in your experience, what is the big mistakes that you see multinationals making all the time? Um, you mean the multinationals that I don't work with? That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> um, I think that... I have been impressed, frankly, over the years that I've been doing transfer pricing at the fact that when when the documentation rules came out and when the, just the general rules themselves came out, it was more, um, I think it was more of an afterthought. I, I really don't think that, at least at that point in time, companies took it quite as seriously. And to be honest, They've really been forced to take it more seriously in, the, in more recent years, not because of the IRS, but because of all the foreign governments that are um, going after big U.S. multinationals where they always think there's bunches of money. Um, so I think that sometimes I've seen um, clients just didn't take it seriously enough, and, um, and that, can, that can hurt you in the long run. Um, they either think it's fine. Nobody's ever, um, nobody's ever audited me. And one last one is I have also worked with companies that have grown. So they started out as, you know, two guys in a garage and ended up suddenly they're a $400 million a year company and they don't realize that that makes tax authorities look at them. And so they sometimes are a little slow to catch up with, um, you know, being serious about the transfer pricing because they, they think of themselves as of being no interest to tax authorities until they are. Yeah, that's right. We see that all the time as well. We want to talk today specifically about transfer pricing in a recession. So while we spoke, mm-hmm. you had mentioned that transfer pricing during times of recessions are really about transfer pricing and losses because companies can report losses at any time, not just during a recession. Right. So do recession okay. strategies apply for industry downturns and other unpredictable events in the economy or poorly run companies? Um, I think because. <laughs> Um, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, and companies tend to not dwell on losses, right? So the goal of the company is to be successful and make money, and everybody sort of aims towards that. And so I think that there are times when suddenly you're losing money, and whereas the tax authority might start from the premise that you're losing money because there's something wrong with your tax transfer pricing, you might very well be losing money because you lost the contract you thought you were going to get. Or three of your big um, plants are wiped out. Or So I think that the companies will are aware of things like industry downturns. It's really hard to plan for that, you know? Of course, um, yeah. 
particularly when you have set up, I mean, if you look at the transfer pricing rules and you look at just Section 42, it kind of doesn't really, it might mention losses in there, but we all sort of go into it with this presumption that somebody is making money, that somewhere there is profit, there's income, and therefore it, it needs to be spread around appropriately. And I think that that whole thing falls apart when you, you know, have a hurricane that comes through Puerto Rico and wipes out your plants and you can't produce your, um, your drugs anymore, whatever. I mean, so, um, so I think that, that if anything, the challenge is when you do have what you would call, quote-unquote, routine um, actors, you know, my routine distributor, my routine manufacturer, and then some externality that isn't routine at all happens, it's, it's, um, it's important that you as a taxpayer be able to explain that to the tax authorities. And that's where I see companies figure out, like, what am I going to say? What is the story I'm going to tell on this? How do I explain? Um, you know, industry downturns, okay, uh, tax authorities might be aware of those. Global, I was at the IRS at, at the Compton Authority during the, you know, from 2009 to 2014 when we were dealing with tax years that were part of the great global collapse. And we struggled a lot with, you know, trying to figure out, you know, should anybody be making money? And if and if nobody's making money, how do we share the losses? Because I'll tell you, countries don't like sharing losses. Right. Yeah. So how is it that the multinational corporations should respond to this in terms of compliance? Do you think they still should put right. as much effort into transfer pricing documentation? I think the, oh, goodness. Yes. I mean, in some ways, I would say that, that you need to work even harder to explain your losses than to explain your profit. Because tax authorities enter into this enterprise with the assumption that if you have losses, they must be driven by your transfer pricing. Period. Full stop. I have had more arguments. I have argued with other countries over that. I have argued with with taxpayers. I have argued with, you know, various and sundry, you know, tax authorities over this, that there is a tendency um, with tax authorities everywhere to draw the direct line between losses and transfer pricing. So, and it's interesting to me that that, started up, you know, that people all got worried about profit shifting coming out of a, a time when there were no profits to shift. And I don't know whether that was the result of, you know, action item one was, in fact, the digital economy. And I believe that the digital world, as they keep talking about it, like it's this special thing and like not every company in the world isn't digital, but um, it drove so much. Um, suspicion, and, you know, we really have to be careful to make sure that there's not profit shifting, and basically, they made it action item one, and when they actually sat down to try and work on it, they kind of went, eh, and <laughs> it kind of went to the bottom, and then they didn't issue anything about it until after all the other action items 
have been taken care of. So BEP stands for also base erosion and profit shifting. Right. And um, and so you can you can have situations where they're well they're as worried about artificially putting losses in their country and erode the base of their um, tax, their, of their ability to tax, as they are shifting profits to another country. Um, because, you know, it's interesting, being a transfer pricing professional, I have to admit there have been times when, of course, I'll say, well, all of these decisions must have been made because of transfer pricing, and then you realize, well, I know, you know, we closed that plant in Germany because the plant in Germany was losing money. Right. It had zero to do. We wanted to move something over to France so we could, you know, um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's really, uh, in the really well-run and, and com- companies that I've worked with that have really got good, solid transfer pricing um, in place, it starts with the business. And then it moves to to the transfer pricing. I always say, if if anybody's heard me um, speak, I usually end up at one point saying it's important that the transfer pricing tail not wag the business dog. Right. And and so it's important that um, that you're able to explain. You know, you actually sometimes you have to work harder to explain your documentation when you have an unusual business model. Or you're in a new industry, or um, you have—I don't know—one of your entities that's being so poorly managed that they're losing money, and I'm going to explain why I lost money. Right. Yeah, yeah. If I'm hearing you, I understand. It sounds like the tax authorities are forgetting about the base and just worry about the profit shifting. And so they're looking at these losses and thinking that the losses come from transfer pricing, but they they seem to come from, you know, some other business circumstance or environmental circumstance. So I guess in, in the environment of a recession, how do transfer pricing authorities treat transfer pricing during a, t- a recession? Are they also looking to find ways to make more money? Is the scrutiny heightened or is it lessened to kind of give people a break? What's your opinion? Um, it's, it sort of depends. I would say that um, some countries are, um, it, it depends too on how hard the recession has hit that country. So, you know, what was really unusual in, you know, the, the mid 2006 onwards, that global breakdown was there really weren't any countries that weren't affected by it. So I think there was to some degree, while no, while I would, while I was at IRS, argue vehemently with other countries over, um, look, the bottom line of this company is a loss. So we all have to, like, we have to each bear a piece of that loss. And the response is often, particularly if it is the country that has the quote-unquote routine function of the routine distributor or the routine whatever, um, there is a tendency to want to hang on to that. You know, well, but we were making 3 to 5%, and why, why shouldn't we continue to make 3 to 5% even, the, even if the entire company is losing its shirt? Um, 
Right, because they're still providing their routine function. Right. That's right. That's right. They're still providing their routine functions, and it's not their fault that they aren't selling anything, you know? Like, I'm the distributor, and I can't sell anything, but I still have people, and I still have warehouses, and I still have, you know, I still have, you know, basic, you know, expenses and costs that I still have to, you know, pay for. Um, and that's where I think transfer pricing itself, you know, initially that the rules came in, the regulations came in, the OECD issued their rules, their guidelines in 95, the U.S. issued theirs in 93, 94, and then um, cost sharing 96. And I think at that point there was, um, it was, I'm not going to say simplistic, but it, we hadn't developed as, as complex uh, an understanding of transfer pricing. It was much more, I'm a routine, I get 3 to 5% done and done, without truly appreciating the fact that for every entity in a multinational group, there are going to be both global factors and then there are going to be country-specific factors. So you might have one of your one of your affiliates that actually loses money, and it has everything to do with economic conditions and market conditions in that country, and nothing to do with what's happening with, you know, the intercompany payments. We've, over time, um, and over the globalization, if you will, of the markets, have developed a much more nuanced, much more... Um, sort of sophisticated, if you will. It's the wrong word. I'm at the beach. I can't think of the word. Um, a more deep understanding of, you know, what transfer pricing actually is and the forces that can enter into what's my bottom line in any given year. Um, and so, for example, you do have, I mean, in the U.S. regs, there is that one little section it says if you are involved in a market penetration strategy, that's like the one little get out of jail free card that you can use if you want to say I'm not making money. Um, you know that I can have these sort of unusual returns because I'm trying to enter a market. So of course we'll give you a break and not expect you to be, you know, making money. Um, but it really, it's interesting how little, like how much we, how much time and energy we spend talking about profits and how very little time and energy we, have, we spend talking about losses. Yeah, I agree. And realistically, losses are, you know, I, I call it the L word, like you never want to talk to your, your client, oh, the L word, like, oh, you know, or turning around and having to try to explain to a tax authority you know, even trying to explain to the IRS if a U.S. company has a has a foreign affiliate that lost money for any number of reasons that has nothing to do with transfer pricing, it's interesting to me how sympathetic all the tax authority people are with the notion that losses must be bad, like there must be something wrong with transfer pricing, even if it's even if they're even if they're supposed to be arguing against a foreign adjustment. You know, they have sympathy for each other over yeah, this. 
Yeah, it's it's nice to hear the tax authority having sympathy. That's that's a uh, pretty unusual, but you know, during during a recession, it's certainly applicable. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about some of the specific struggles you see companies have during a recession or an economic downturn. Um, you know, I was just thinking about if the whole market is bad, could there be negative, uh, you know, benchmarks, negative ranges? Oh yeah, oh absolutely, absolutely. I mean. During the economic downturn, when you were benchmarking things, it was not uncommon to have a negative lower quartile. Um, and and while you had to then, because there would be a funny thing where the tax authority would have a set of comparables that wouldn't have a negative lower quartile, they would manage to cherry pick out any company that lost money. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, when I was working at Compton Authority during those bad years, um, you would look at and, you know, have to agree with, you know what, this comp, either the comp set has a lower quartile and negative lower quartile, and that's just how it is this year, um, or you would say these extraordinary events happened. You know, there was a tsunami that wiped out four of our six manufacturing plants. There was a hurricane that wiped out whatever it was. And because of that extraordinary event, these things didn't happen. And thus, um, if we adjust for that, and I've helped companies do that, where you adjust, for some extraordinary event that was completely unexpected and not within the control of the company, but that had a very direct impact on the company's results, and make adjustments to the financials to show that but for that extraordinary event, we would have achieved, you know, reasonable, reasonable amounts of profit. Right. And that's sort of another way to approach it, to say... Um, you know, my entire customers, like, I sell this very high-end thing that, you know, nobody has any money anymore, nobody's buying. But, or, I mean, more often when you're looking at extraordinary events, you're looking at things like, um, you know, there was some big, you know, a hurricane or something or a fire at your plant and you weren't able to produce. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So even though these sort of environmental or economic things are happening, like a hurricane, um, you know, the third-party comparables wouldn't be affected the same way as the taxpayer. So one way the taxpayer can respond is to make an adjustment to their financials. You do that when you do that when the tax authority refuses to accept your comp set that has a negative lower quartile. <laughs> right. And yeah, and that's interesting because they're usually throwing out those negative comps, right? Sure. Yeah. Right. And I just want to cut in quickly for our first CPE code word. That code word is complicated, as in just when you thought transfer pricing couldn't get any more complicated, here comes a recession. Maybe? A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Back to you guys. And so what are there other creative ways that a company can respond during a time of recession as far as, you know, other ideas like adjusting their financials for extraordinary events? If you have an efficient business model and there are external events that interfere with your, you know, goal to make money because everybody wants to make money, right? Nobody says, this year I'm going to lose money. You know, I've been making money for 10 years, but this year I'm going to lose money. Nobody does that. Um, so I think that in terms of um, uh, addressing with a tax authority um, why you lost money, why the routine distributor um, didn't make any money that year, um, again, you have to be able to tell the story. I mean, if you tell a story that doesn't, like, make the hair stand up on the back of the neck of the tax authority. Like the story has to make sense, and it has to be, and it has to be driven by your business. But I think it, it's interesting to me how often companies spend a lot of time on the numbers, crank the numbers, crank the numbers, but maybe they don't spend as much time figuring out how to explain those, how to put together a. Uh, complete, consistent narrative and explanation of the situation that would lead a tax authority inexorably to the conclusion, of course you lost money, it's got nothing to do with your transfer pricing. So maybe you're saying that that's pretty much the goal of transfer pricing analysis and documentation during a recession is to sort of prove that the losses are not related to the transfer pricing. Exactly. And it's and it, it, and it's funny, it's easier to do when it's a broader, like there's a global recession or there was something, you know, a hurricane or a whatever um, within a particular area than it is, I'm sorry, I had really bad management of this one entity and we've gotten rid of those people who didn't know what they were doing, but in the meantime, they lost money. You know, those sorts of things, are, they happen. I mean, they happen in businesses all the time. You have to, you, you do have to take into account that some businesses are better run than others, and some affiliates are better run than others, and and that can sometimes have a very direct impact on what your results are. Yeah. So if we think of the environment of transfer pricing holistically during a time of recession, um, what would you say some of the biggest issues are? Would a company need to change their methodology for transfer pricing. I mean, we've already talked about how we need to prove that the losses are not related to transfer pricing, but um, right. you know, are, do they need to worry about how the comparables will hold up? Hold up? I think that if, you, if you're using a profit-based method, which most people are, then um, 
you go, you update your comps, right, year after year. And to the extent that the comp set that you've been using shows a lower, you know, negative lower quartile, and your losses are within that, then, you know, you do have to, um, you know, persuade. Sometimes you have to remind the tax authority that they thought those comparables were fabulous when the range was a little higher. (laughs) So it's kind of not principled for them to decide we don't like those comparables anymore because those companies are losing money. So sometimes you kind of have to point that out to the tax authority that, you know, and and some tax authorities will cherry pick more than others. Um, Sometimes, you know, when you get into, like when I would get into um, conversations with other countries and we might have different concepts, we'd say, well, let's put them all together and let's see what we get. Um, I think that, um, again, as long, it all comes down to every company is different. So um, if you've been making money, rolling along, rolling along, and then you have one bad year, and your bad year is a result of something that happened in your company, we had a fire in the plant, then that's your story. And you say, if we adjust this in this way, then we end up with, you know, being like the comps. If suddenly all your comps go away, um, then that you tell a slightly different story. It's like you know, it's funny with the when you're in a downturn in a recession, countries will argue over who has to bear more of the losses because nobody wants those losses, especially if you like the U.S. You've got you know NOLs that you can carry over. That loss can affect your your income position for a number of years to come. So that's interesting. They have to worry about carrying those losses forward for many years. Um, we were just talking about uh, how there could be extraordinary items during recession, and that just reminded me, I wanted to return to something that you spoke about a little bit earlier. We were talking about entities that make a routine return and how that can be tricky during a transfer pricing recession. Um, just for uh-huh. the sake of clarity and for our listeners, can you just explain what you mean when you talk about a routine return? Sure. Um, we tend to, when we're going to look at a profit-based method, like the kind of profit method, we say, okay, which of these entities is the simpler one? Which one has fewer functions? You know, so let's say that I'm a U.S.-based multinational and I distribute my product in Canada. And so I have to have an entity up there to distribute, but that entity, really all they do is take shipments of the product and then distribute it to various, like, have a warehouse and sell it. So they have a very routine function. You know, they get the product, they sell the product. It's not, you know, they're not working on R&D. They're not working on manufacturing, whatever. And so that would be a routine function. So low-value adding. Yeah, low-value add. I mean, it's, you, well... Whether the value is 5% mark, uh, margin or 8 or whatever, it's not, you know, it's fairly consistent if all things being equal and the market being fine and all that. And then similarly, you can have contract manufacturers where you outsource some manufacturing function and it's very routine and you're just making the same widget over and over. 
and sending the widget to some other place where they assemble it into, you know, a big widget. And um, and those, again, would be, oh, well, routine contract manufacturing. You'd expect between 10 and 20% margin. And, and generally, if you go look at the comps, like you go look at, um, you know, distribution companies, manufacturing companies, whatever, you'll discover, eh, that's the range, that's good. And, um, and so that's sort of what we think of. And unfortunately, I think that over the years, both taxpayers and tax authorities have sort of thought of that routine thing as sort of, since typically you're going to hit between a 5 and 8% margin, and frankly, your transfer pricing policies that you set at the front end are designed to leave those, quote-unquote, routine entities with that routine level of pro- pro- um, profit when something goes haywire and suddenly, for example, the distribution entity has nothing to sell because nobody's buying anything because everything's in a because the, the global economy is blown up. And so but you still have people and you still have warehouses and you still have, you know, functions there. Then you get into these, you know, kind of disputes with the other, the, the country where the distribution entity sits expects there always to be that routine profit. And so when suddenly you're not getting that, be it a global recession or whatever, it's interesting to me the number of times that countries, they recognize that there's a big recession, but they sort of feel like they should still be getting their little piece of routine profit even when the company itself has a bottom line loss. And, right. and I've had IRS agents tell me this as well, that they also, you know, in various cases that I worked when I was a competent authority, they, you know, we're all happy to share the profit, but we're not so happy to share the losses. That's right. And I just want to cut in with our second CPE code word, and that code word is controversy. No matter what the economy, your transfer pricing goal is to avoid controversy with the tax authorities and back to you guys. Yeah, so it sounds like in these cases that, you know, the entity that's performing the routine function should maybe consider uh, renegotiating their transfer pricing policy for that specific year. But maybe when we're talking about guaranteed profits. You know, but I would say, I would say not, see, I don't think you, I think it's important that you not <laughs> change the policy because the policy is going to be fine every year. If it's worked fine for 15 years and then you have a couple of bad years and then it'll be fine again, the question is how do you explain that loss? Like, okay, here's our policy. This has always been our policy. Um, and But nobody, you know, because even when we give them their 5% markup on whatever cost pools we give it to them, that usually gives them, you know, like you you mark up services by 10% and ultimately the entity ends up with a 5% markup 5% margin because they have all these other costs that they have to bear. Well, maybe you leave the policy intact and you explain why it is that you lost money that year. Right. 
Okay. So it sounds like maybe we don't want to consider renegotiating our transfer pricing policy, but maybe reminding the parent entity or the entity that's paying that routine return that they also benefit from the upside of having a routine return relationship. So in the years when things are good, they're making much more money because they're not allocating that to their routine service provider. I think that we can we can overthink this in the sense that um, the the tax authority, or perhaps it is the you know whoever runs the entity that is suddenly losing money. Um, I've certainly dealt with clients where one country affiliate might be you know always doing better, and some of that has to do with the the. Um, the country itself, and some of it has to do with who's running it. And, you know, you, you can get into all sorts of fact again because transfer pricing is so fact-driven. You can it may it may serve the it may serve the parent well internally in their corporate structure to say, well, we'll keep giving you your routine return, and you still be showing a positive bottom line even though the rest of us are losing their shirts, the problem with that is then you have the other countries or the parent, the, the country where the parent is that might just notice that, you know, there seems to be profits elsewhere and not here. And isn't that, you know, then isn't that tax authority going to say you're manipulating it to continue to give this entity a profit when you don't have a profit anyplace else. Right. That's a potential downside. Yeah, she could say, we're just going to wear through this, and we're going to get through this, and then we'll all be happy joy joy later down the road. But you do open yourself up to a question, let's say, from the, from the, the, head, the headquarters country about weight. Are we, the headquarters country, now eating more losses so that your affiliates can show positive profit? And isn't that not good? And I'm not saying that you can't explain that in a way that the headquarters country would understand and find it's all fine. But I think that in, in my experience with um, some other countries that, you know, if they're, if they're losing money, then everybody should be losing money. That's right. And their U.S. affiliate should not be making any money when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in a in an economic recession, it seems that the routine service providers or dis- routine distributors, whatever sort of routine earner it is, may continue earning good profits. But on the whole, we would expect that companies are doing poorly. So that that brings me to what I want to talk about next, which is comparables. Um, Is it true that, you know, comp sets in general might get smaller during a time of economic recession because of companies going out of business? Um, I can't say that I've seen that so much that I would say, yeah. I mean, it, it stands to reason that companies do go out of business during recessions and some of them might be comp. I can't say that I've ever seen, um, you know, you might have a company that was a comp the previous year and it's not this year because they've gone out of business, but some other company is there. Um, Because, again, when you're looking at something broad like 
distribution or back office services or something like that, you know, you start with your initial comp set might have, I don't know, 100 companies in it, and then you refine and refine to come down to your 10 or 12 or 15 or however many. So I'm not sure that I would, I have not, I have not seen situations where, um, yeah, I might look at my comp set from year, from one year to the next and realize that, oh, look, uh, three of the companies that I had in my concept last year aren't in the comp set this year. They went out of business or whatever, um, but there are other companies I can pick. Right. So you may have to loosen the criteria, though, presumably, of your search a little bit to make it a little, get some more comparables in there, or are there any other strategies you would recommend uh, as far as reviewing your comps? Yeah, you don't have to change your, you don't have to loosen your criteria so much, because frankly, when, you, when you're picking your final comp, you might, you might end up with a comp set of 12, mm-hmm. and there could easily have been 25 companies that you could have picked, and you just happen to pick those 12, of those 13. So, using exactly the same criteria, I mean, you can refine your criteria so much, that you get down to only these 15 companies meet every single one of my inputs. But I think, in my experience, it's not quite that, you know, refined a process. So I think that you do, you know, you do have to be aware in a downturn that when you go to do your comp search for the following year, like a lot of times, you know, you do transfer pricing documentation and you do... your big study year one where you write everything from scratch and then year two you update your comps and you see if they're still there or not there or do I need to make any adjustments you see what your situation is but you don't necessarily start from scratch whereas if you have a big recession or a downturn you may end up finding that I had nine comps and four of them went out of business, so now I'm going to go do a new search again when normally I wouldn't be doing another search for another two years. So I think it can create more need to refresh your set and review your set more frequently when you're in a downturn. Because um, you can't necessarily count on your comps being there year over year. I, I definitely agree with that. And by the way, Barbara, this is Mimi. I just I just jumped in. I, I'm sorry I, I couldn't be here earlier. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I, I don't know if you remember me, but you know, Richard introduced us, and I know we we we've, yes. we've run into each other in the transfer pricing circuit, right? So. <laughs> yes, we have. No, I do. But you know, you made a really good point too about the fact that. Even in a recessionary environment, even though it's a recessionary environment where people are thinking, oh, I, I don't want to update my comp sets, right, because it's another budget expense item. In fact, economic environment in and of itself, it creates a situation where you may actually want to do that and spend the money to do that because you need to mitigate the potential risk, right? Exactly. And you have to be able to, again, tell the story to the tax authority. If you're going to say, I lost money, and you you know, one way to deal with it is to say, extraordinary events, if we address the financials for the extraordinary events, it looks like we would end up somewhere where we were last year. 
But sometimes when you're talking about this, you know, complete doctrine, you need to go and you can justify using different comps and redoing your comps to the tax authority because, um, you know, they, the companies don't exist anymore. Yep. <laughs> and so... You've got to refresh your time. Yeah, exactly. Like, and companies are always restructuring in recessionary environments, you know, going bankrupt. I think recently, it, I just saw it was like about a week ago, Forever 21 filed for bankruptcy. Right. And they go bankrupt, they get bought by another company. So you discover that this company that you had done comps, whatever, from the year before, and now suddenly, oh, they're actually part of another company. That's why I can't find them anymore, <laughs> right. because they've been bought by another company, which can obviously happen frequently when you're dealing with the downturn. Um, so, and there's, and you know how it is. It's so, um, it's so industry specific too. When the prices of steel went through the roof, there was a whole situation where, because of the whole supply chain related to the steel industry, you were seeing yes. sort of those downstream comparables getting impacted, and and they were all losing money. Right, right, and God knows, in like oil and gas. I mean, the price of oil, you know, the price of oil goes up or down, and and the companies that want to drill for the oil don't want to drill for the oil, and the oil they're going to get out of the ground is not going to be worth anything. Yep, yep. You know, it's such an asset-intense project that you have, I don't know, big machines that have to drill things, and, you know, you, you can't just, you have to have them there, and assets cost money. Um, just maintaining them and keeping them, go, you know, so it's um, it it really comes down to again the you know making sure that the business even if you like if you've made a bad business decision oh well I made a bad business decision but that the business drives the transfer pricing and that you can articulate that to to a tax authority as opposed to the tax authority here's what you're saying, and I don't know, like, the hair goes up in the back, and they go, something's not tracking for me with what you're saying. Right. And you don't want to be in that position. Do you also need to change your analysis? I mean, we've heard that the CPM is not as good of a method during times of recession, and that could be related to the number of comparables. Is that your experience? I would say that you don't suddenly say, I'm not going to use the CPM anymore. Um... You know, it's funny, the CPM or these profit-based methods, I feel the same way about them as um, Churchill felt about democracy. It's the worst method except for all the others. <laughs> I mean, That's a good one. The profit-based methods don't always fit and certainly don't fit perfectly. Um, but as long as your story makes it clear that whatever my results are, they are not the result of transfer pricing manipulation, and you can make that credible explanation to the tax authority, then they're much more understanding of those losses. And maybe they'll fight it out with another country and say, well, wait a minute, we're losing our shares. You know, we, um, you know, you never can tell. You can do everything right. Um, I've got this set so that, you know, my routine distributor gets a routine 
profit and they'll keep getting the profit even though we're losing money because things are going to turn around. And you can have the headquarters country go, well, wait a second, we're looking at a lot of red ink here, and so we're going to start arguing with you about, you know, suddenly we're going to say, wait a minute, it should be more like a profit split. But it seems like every, like the market countries are very interested in how they can get some profit. But I'm not sure that they have one paragraph in there about losses, and they don't really... We don't like to think about losses. Yeah, nobody likes to think about losses. They always want to see how do they get our fair share of the pie when everybody's making money. We want we want to make more. The market, the market countries, if you will, you know, the ones like we have all the customers that we need to get the money. Um, When there is a recession and when there are losses, then aren't going to be so jazzed about picking up their share of the losses. That's sort of. We, we're very good at calculating profit splits, but nobody really wants to do a loss split. Yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, to your earlier point about losses don't necessarily mean that the transfer price is wrong. I, I, I completely agree with that. I've had a situation where I've had a client, because of FX fluctuations, put them in a loss position. Right. And it's like, right. you know, you have to articulate it just because you don't fall within a specified range doesn't necessarily mean that your transfer price is off. I think you probably need to make some adjustments to that. But here, you know, and that kind of goes along with this idea of, okay, well, what 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 is the data we're looking at? Are we looking at the current year, right, when the market's bad, yeah. or multi-year? And I think, you know, the U.S. position is looking at multi-year will account for fluctuations in business cycles, right, versus a Canada right. who likes to look at just one year of data. I mean... You know, when you're talking about... Or India, that likes a point. Yeah, you have a point, exactly. So, so you know, when we're talking about a, an environment that has significant, you know, significantly different economic conditions, right? Do you think that a multi-year still makes sense or that maybe a single year would be better? Any, any opinion on that? I think that, again... Um, because it's so fact-specific, I would say that you certainly would want to explore. You would want to explore the multi-year results versus single-year results. And, um, again, you, there's a lot of facts. You might realize that when you go to update your comp, some of these comps have fallen out. Some are new. And the tax authorities are not unmindful of general economic conditions. That doesn't mean that they like it, <laughs> that there's losses. Um, and sometimes you have to help them understand why they, these losses are to be understood. And sometimes you can say, well, if you look at the just the last year, everybody went down. Like the only way we can even keep the lower quartile positive is by including three years. Yeah. And if we just look at this year, then these comps, assuming that they are still in business, and I don't think they don't necessarily drop out of the set maybe after one bad year. But I think that's a way to, again, tell the story so that the tax authority will not jump to the conclusion that you must be manipulating your transfer prices. Right. There are certain trends that they can you can point to, so to speak, right? They can point to. Yeah, exactly. Right. They can say, hey, look, we, you know, FX, like, Mm-hmm. It's not our fault. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> we can't control the price of oil and gas necessarily. Well, unless you're part of the oil consortium. Right. So, 
Right. And I, you can't, and you know, we're, it's not our fault that your currency, like, like, like Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, a lot of the former Soviet Union countries, they have, you know, pretty, pretty volatile um, currencies. And so, you know, those sorts of things you can, you can also adjust for that. So you can show, look, you know, this is a result of, you know, the currency drop. Like my, you know, my Argentinian dollar was worth like 12 cents by the end of right. the year, whatever. Yeah. And I, I think that, but that, but that requires work and it requires, it and it requires thought. Yep. And I think if there's one thing that I've seen over the years of doing transfer pricing that I have found sort of understandable in the sense that you do it all the time and it gets to in your mind be routine or not a big deal. But um, I think that sometimes there isn't enough attention paid to those sections of the report that actually paint your business and what you do and so forth that set the stage for the story so that it all, you know, so that when they read the documentation report, when they get to your results, it makes sense to them because you explained to them why it is, this is what you're going to be seeing and this is why you're going to be seeing it kind of thing. And I think that sometimes there's a tendency to just, yeah, it's got the same stuff here over here. I just won't change that. Yeah, I was thinking about your time at the IRS. And as a tax authority, how would you react if your jurisdiction is showing losses, but the other entities are profitable? Well, again, I would say that... (laughs) I will use the, the, my, my best answer for transposing. It depends. And I think that... That's like the best answer trouble, we have for everything, isn't it, Barbara? Yes. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. Where we get into trouble, particularly in the transpersing world, is when we don't accept the idea that it depends. So I can say, and I was, when I was at the Internal Revenue Service doing map cases, you know, everybody was losing their shirt, and we had agreed in an APA that we were going to, that it was going to be a profit split, and that's what we had agreed to do. And so then Japan says, well, you've agreed to a profit split, and we have losses, so now you have to split the losses. I could understand the, you know, the principled nature of that comment, but the field never was really excited with that. The field will be like, but, 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 and, you know, and I would have to kind of remind them, well, see, we said we share, and so you can't say, well, share it, well, we want a piece of the profit when there's profit, but when there's losses, we still want to get, like, a distribution return, let's say, or a whatever return. And um, where the rubber hits the road, right, you're, you know, you're trying to say, we give our distribution entities a routine return, and maybe you can show that over the years, whereas the distribution entities got, you know, between 3 and 9%, an average of, like, say, 6 but the but the parent had, you know, had profits that were much higher, had an operating margin of, you know, 20, 22, whatever, then maybe you'd say, okay, fine, for this short term, keep letting them have their little um, routine profit because things are going to turn around. Right. It, it depends. And it, it depends it, on the... 
the facts and circumstances, I'm, uh, of course, right? But uh, and I'm sure in these situations, especially under MAP procedures, you probably went back and looked at the intercompany agreements and what was agreed upon yeah. and the like the terms and conditions of that agreement because that probably uh, also had a significant bearing on to what was agreed uh, between the two parties and how was it applied, right? Right, right. And, you know, we agreed... You know, we, we enter into this intercompany. Now, unfortunately, there are some companies that aren't quite as good at um, tapering their um, relationships as others, um, which is the other thing that I would always try to that I always try to work with clients on is making sure that they actually have these things written down because a lot of times, even big companies, it would surprise me how. They would say, well, yeah, we do this and they do that. And you'd say, well, did anybody write that down anywhere? And you'd be like, oh, well, we have this agreement that somebody signed in 1994. And we're still using it, even though it expired 15 years ago. Right. Or it's, or or it's a gentleman's agreement. Like This is what this was negotiated. Yeah, yeah. And if you knew our business, you would know that it was negotiated under very, you know, contentious situations, right? So, yeah, I, right. I agree. That, it's that the paper trail and having that legal documentation, I'm sure, uh, it becomes super important, especially if you're in that type of situation. Oh, yeah. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp that was an informative discussion transfer pricing in an economic downturn or time of losses can overly complicate things for multinationals but it kind of brings transfer pricing's art science relationship to the surface too i want to thank barbara uh, nicole and mimi for walking us through that and shedding light on all of the important things to consider before a possible recession hits. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know, and here's how it works. Uh, we put you, Barbara, the transfer pricing expert, in the hot seat for a rapid-fire round of fun questions. Barbara, you're today's expert. Are you ready? I am ready. And that was question number one. Question number two is, what is your biggest everyday challenge? Uh, getting up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right with you there. Hire fast, fire fast. Agree or disagree? Disagree. Disagree. And think of your greatest mentor. What have you learned from him or her? I would say 
Um, you know, and I'm, I apologize if I get too emotional here because one of my best mentors in the world was Mike Danilak, and, um, who recently passed away. And what, what I learned from Mike was to just not quit. You have to take everything, particularly in Transurprising again in life, you have to take everything to the end of the road, like no shortcuts. And I think that when I've seen people in life generally and in transfer pricing where they stumble and get into trouble, a lot of times they've taken shortcuts. And so I would say that Mike was someone who impressed on me that not to take shortcuts, but also to be open to every possible um, answer. So anyway, he was yes. a great man. Keeping keeping that open mind and and being grateful for the people who impart that upon us. Um, I like this question yeah. a lot because it reminds me of my favorite Rod Stewart song. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started your career? Oh, um, I guess I wish I'd known how much that I was going to like transfer pricing because I didn't come to it in my career until I'd been out of law school like 15 years. So I guess I wish I had known when I got out of school that I was going to like tax the transfer pricing so much and I would have just gotten right into it. And for our last question, people define success in different ways. What's your definition? Oh, um, I define success as leaving something better than you found it. That's good. That's good. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And let us all try to leave things uh, better than we found them. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us. That just about wraps us up. We're going to let you get back to your vacation. Uh, and please go back to your okay. vacation because we're yes, all... We are going to head... We're going to head back to the beach. Dude. My husband is very patiently waiting for me to finish. Well, in that case, we will let you go. Thank you so much, Barbara. That just about wraps up our episode for today. Hopefully you learned a thing or two here on The Fiona Show. Just in case you're interested in learning more about transfer pricing related topics, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify. While you're at it, subscribe to our sister podcast. That's The Fiona Show. Hot off the press where we feed you the transfer pricing headlines every week. This podcast was engineered, edited, and hosted by yours truly. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our fabulous, funny, and informative scripts. Yes, she wrote that line, too. Until next week, this is Matthew DeMello asking, is a recession heading our way? Who really cares? Because now, whether or not it is or it isn't, you're prepared. You're prepared.